This is Real Pharma, your podcast for real conversations with pharma pathfinders. In every episode, you will hear from an industry insider who has a story to share that goes beyond the headlines. No spin, no sacred cows, no hidden agendas, just stories and the people behind them. Now, here are your hosts, Dr. Nari O oh and Ian Wint. Welcome to today's episode, where we talk about something that has been described in various terms, ranging from depressing to scary to bloodbath. The biopharmaceutical job market over the last three years or so since the beginning of the COVID epidemic. Our guest today is Christian Rawlings from EPM Scientific, the leading biopharmaceutical recruitment firm specializing in the life sciences. Christian is an expert with about 12 years of experience. He has worked in the UK, in Switzerland, in the US, He's covered multiple therapeutic areas. He specializes in the commercial sector of the biopharmaceutical industry. Welcome, Christian. Thank you for having me. Wow, that was a pretty ominous uh, opening, Nari, but I like that. <laughs> it kind of reflects, I think, uh, a bit of the topic today. I think we'll have some good news and some sobering news, maybe. But welcome, Christian. Glad you could join us today. Yeah, no, I'm excited and, and looking forward to, to getting under the hood of this and, and obviously living and breathing it every day, um, really understanding what is going on in the headlines versus what's going on on a day-to-day basis versus what's going on for companies for next year and over the last couple of years. I'm a history nerd, so if we can talk about the history of, of the staffing market, I never thought I was going to get an opportunity to do that, and people actually listen. So, uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll get into it. We can't guarantee the second part, but I'm definitely looking forward to the first part. <laughs> so one thing I thought would be interesting is to just share some stats that, that I was reviewing that I think hopefully describe the environment that we're all in right now uh, in terms of, of the job market and specifically in the life sciences area. So bear with me. I'm just going to read a few of them, and, and hopefully this isn't too depressing for anybody, but, but I think we need to be honest about kind of the state of the market, right? So just in no particular order, kind of working from, let's say, recent to, to further on, less recent and earlier in 2023. So in November, Pfizer announced layoffs of 500 roles, which follows another announcement at the end of October, where they laid off about 790 folks uh, in their New Jersey office. Uh, in October, also, Amgen laid off about 350 employees. Uh, in August, Sage laid off 40% of their workforce, along with Biogen announcing a reduction in workforce of about 1,000 related to an FDA rejection. In August, Novartis announced 103 employees being laid off, in addition to hundreds that they announced at the beginning of the year. Just kind of adding on to this list, Novavax, BMS, Takeda, Gilead, Genentech, J&J, Nova Nordisk, you get the idea, and dozens of other biotechs all had layoffs in 2023. Zooming out a little bit, the global pharmaceutical industry experienced a 36% drop in new job postings uh, related to future work in the third quarter of 2023 compared to Q2. And this is down about 40% compared to third quarter of 2022. So big drops there. Zooming out again, just kind of look at the, the, you know, beyond even life sciences. You know, that period of time between 2020 and 2022 is, is often known as kind of the great resignation period. And the stats tell us about 54% of professionals who left their roles during that time period did not return to the same industry. So they took a job in some other new industry, I guess. And about two-thirds of pharma professionals today are contemplating changing roles, mostly uh, seeking uh, more challenging careers or better compensation. So I know there's a lot of numbers in there. I thought all of them were interesting for, for different reasons. But, but Christian, I wonder, does that 
kind of reflect what you're seeing and hearing? I mean, you're in this day to day. Are these headlines accurate? Uh, you know, do you have any other perspective on this that, that might be interesting for the audience? Yeah, I think that those are headlines ultimately. And if you want to know about what went on during the COVID period of recruitment, we can talk about that. Uh, this year, yeah, there's been there's been changes, but this constant kind of like ticker of layoffs that are being tracked by some media outlets and a very kind of doom and gloom scenario. Um, well, frankly, if, if that was the case, then we would have seen the vast majority of staffing organizations just go out of business, right? Whether they're contracting or they're doing permanent hires, um, that would happen. And I would argue that versus last year, most companies are slightly down on revenue. Um, but ultimately, you're, in your stats, people focus a lot more on the negative than they do on the positive. We've seen a multitude of FDA approvals. Just this week, we've seen multiple Series C oversubscriptions in funding. Um, there's obviously been a significant uptick, which we'll get into later, but significant uptick in the demand around uh, dermatology products, neurology products, obviously GLP-1s, right? And the obesity space is, is booming at the moment. But similarly, there has been a significant decrease in the amount of investment within oncology programs. And we've seen a lot of layoffs there. There's been a significant decrease in COVID programs where there was a massive amount of hiring over the last three years. And we have to remember, I mean, I'm sat with two extremely qualified individuals in this space. I'm coming to this strictly from a recruitment business standpoint. But if you're in the business of curing something or finding a solution to something long-term, once that's found, then you kind of got to go focus on something else. It's the reason why life science is so interesting because from my perspective, I joined um, EPM Scientific in 2015 and uh, and I remember being on this call, kind of sat there, hands sweating. You know, I'm in my early 20s. I don't really know what's going on, but I'm in there talking with this company who have this this drug that's going to allow the body to fight cancer. And I was like, what is this called? And it's called a PD-1 inhibitor, right? And so what our responsibility was, was to build the commercial organization for Merck or in Europe, MSD, around Keytruda. And uh, similarly, we were having conversations about what was Opdivo going to be and everything like this. Now we've got like, what, $16 billion worth of peak forecast for Katruda. That's not a stat I have in front of me. It's just a, a, a guesstimation. Um, but oncology is naturally going to regress from a solid tumor standpoint because we saw so much hiring, such a rush towards that space. Similarly, with COVID, you had multiple companies advancing med uh, medicine, vaccines, et cetera, everything from remdesivir with Gilead through to um, obviously, BioNTech with the vaccine, um, everything pushed in that space. And now there's been a, a major decrease. If you look at companies that were doing PCR testing for diagnostics, I remember having a cotton bud up my nose probably every few days. And now I've maybe had two this year, right? Even just from a personal standpoint, that has decreased. So the market flows with the movement of what we're trying to cure today. And from a commercial standpoint, where I focus, um, yeah, there's no one's been calling me saying, hey, I need to build a, a you know, a, a diagnostic sales team, right? But when it comes to biosimilars, there's still a dramatic amount of hiring going on, even with necessarily, you know, negative news and things like that in that space. But neuroscience is booming. Obesity space is booming. So Christian, it sounds like maybe the situation is not as dire as one might think, just looking at the news and hearing 
things through the grapevine from people that are all around us because it certainly feels like it's getting closer and closer and there's this sense of dread in the background. So if you can tell us some positive news, that would be great. But also, since you are specializing in commercial, maybe can you tell us specifically for the commercial space, what has this year meant for your work or how do you see the last few years playing out in commercial? Okay. It's also worth mentioning, I've worked in staffing for the last 10 odd years. And that has been across the UK when we were just starting things in EPM. Uh, that's been across Switzerland, where I exclusively focused on on the Swiss market. Uh, and then moving to the US, moving to Texas, having never been to Texas before whatsoever to start up a commercial organization, having to basically figure out the US market. I mean, thinking Palo Alto was in <laughs> Southern California, not really understanding Close. what Wisconsin was as a concept. Yeah. Like it's, yeah, right. It's so I, I've seen a lot of these different spaces and, and a lot of different market conditions across that. And ultimately from my perspective, I've seen much, much smaller markets and how difficult it is to bounce back. And in the US, I think that, you know, as a, as an economy, as a society, uh, really obsessed with like being the best and being number one. And that's amazing. Like I love being here, but also I think that trends and noise can be amplified and there can be positive feedback loops when the economy is good. It is roaring. It is booming. And when it's bad, it's the worst thing ever. And we're going back to 1929 and the wheels are falling off. So I, I just think coming from outside the U US into the US, um, the market here is, is incredible and the opportunity is significant. Um, but really coming back to your question, it's not as dire as, 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 we, as we think. Um, the opportunity is out there. But in 2022 and 2021, uh, I was getting five to six offers for every single candidate that I was working with, especially if they were, um, you know, if, if they were in specific spaces like rare diseases or if they were in specific spaces like oncology. Um, now, it's maybe one offer for a candidate, but that company is going to be stable. They're going to be well-funded. They're going to have a product portfolio and they're going to have long-term progression within the organization. Um, so yeah, there's not like tons, you're not spoiled for choice, but you're also not spoiled for choice in houses that are built on sand where there's going to be a restructure and people had to make these conscious decisions. Do I go with the stable biopharma company or do I go with the, the rapidly growing biotech where maybe long-term I'm going to make more money, but also the risk is a lot higher. So I think this has really been the year of a return to stability. And when I'm, talking to candidates about where they want to go. I'm like, what's the long-term potential? How long has your direct manager been there? How long has their direct manager been there, right? What's your path inside the company? If this main asset fails, are they going to fire you or are you going to be able to move on to another drug? So forgive me if that didn't answer the immediate question. It's a bit more of a, a broader take on it, but I think opportunity is out there. You've got to change your perspective as to, to volume of roles you're going to look at. No, I think that was a great answer. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point though, because you know, arguably there was this overinvestment in biotech or maybe more broadly in the pharma sector during the pandemic. And, and so I think we're seeing a bit of a correction now, right? And, and maybe that's needed, right? Maybe there's some good business reasons for that. And I think the point maybe you were making is that the companies that are kind of surviving, let's say, the ones that are here today are, are maybe stronger and better set up for the, for the long term and more stable environments to consider as, as your next job choice, right? So, you know, I think a mixed 
bag there of, of positives and negatives, but it's not all doom and gloom, and which is great to hear. I think our listeners will probably be relieved to hear that too. I know I am, but I think it's a good perspective and it's one that we should be thinking about. Yeah. So, you know, just to set the stage a little bit for, for our listeners who not all of them may have a lot of experience with recruiters. Maybe they've never used a recruiter before. I mean, can you walk us through, and, and this would help me as well, walk us through a little bit of the day in the life of a life sciences recruiter. Like what what do good recruiters do? What do they not do? What should the expectations be for somebody who's in the job market in terms of how best they they work with their recruiter? Yeah. So I, I think a couple of things to take a look at here. There is and continues to be a huge number of recruiters um, in the US pharmacy school market. And I think that that is because the opportunity is so big to help organizations um, to find talent. And if you have a recruiter who's coming to you and saying, I staff pharma and I'll do anything that you say, right? Scratch your head and say, okay, how legit is this person? Generally, everything starts out with you want to be specialized in a space. So for me, I dedicate myself to launching, helping companies to launch products or to work on marketed assets, um, hence the commercial pharmaceutical leaning. I've also done a lot of work in medical affairs over the years. Um, so it's, it's just kind of worth noting anything really phase three onwards. That's where I focus. And so first of all, it starts off with what is your specialization? Um, and then with that, every single day, literally every single day starts off 7 to 7.30, either listening to a podcast or reading articles about what's going on in the market. Um, my comment to any recruiter who's getting started is if you don't know your market, it's not really going to work out very well. So you have to be reading and then having that conversation throughout the day to try and embed what you've what you've learned and best to speak to experts about it. Um, eight to nine, generally, and literally is boiled down to this much. Um, repetition and discipline, I think is super important. Eight to nine, wherever possible, is actually really doing kind of cold outreach to organizations. Uh, people think that uh, recruiters either have tons of clients organically and they just magic themselves, right? Or they don't have anything. Recruitment, especially for, for my organization, is a, a 360 degree cycle where you want to be sending outreach and speaking to, to companies. That is not calling them up and saying, hey, you're hiring, right? It's probably not going to get you very far. But if you're targeting things which are indicators around um, the commercial commercialization or launch of a product, hey, I saw this, hey, I saw this data, right? Uh, I understand that you just announced you're going to be building your sales team, right? Or speaking to people and understanding actually there's a really big demand at the moment for the analytical components of a business development group like portfolio strategy and analytics and everybody's looking for that so you're calling portfolio strategy and analytics senior directors or vps or you know um, ccos and cbos saying what do you need what is going to be most important for you so the first hour of the day is really just getting on the phone and having those conversations second hour of the day is following up on that and follow-up is a big big thing um, if i have a role for you I've generally called multiple times, emailed multiple times, made sure that it stays fresh and exciting to hiring managers, talent acquisitions to ensure I can get that role, right? But it's also a working progress. Um, so I think that, you know, by that point, you've done your two hours of just business development to get the day started. And then you're jumping into actually working on your searches. And what am I doing in that? I obviously have a very large network where I'm speaking to people that I know. Um, and making sure that I'm connecting with them. Are they open to new roles? What are they specifically looking for? Uh, what is that magic opportunity? Um, you know, what represents a step forward in compensation? There's always million different things that people are going to look for. You'd be surprised the amount of times 
Um, I've run a search in a specific part of the country based exclusively off where somebody went to university because maybe they want to move back, right? Um, even though they've gone to a different pharma hub now. So we're really doing that like headhunting and connecting and making sure that we connect people with opportunities. I'm a big believer if you win your morning, you win your day. Um, so business development in the morning, uh, moving on to speaking with candidates and networking. And then ultimately, there's a lot of process management, setting up interviews. So it's not about closing deals every single day. It's about really making sure that we understand what's going into the market, that we're speaking with candidates, we're speaking with clients, and um, and we're providing like a, a really good service. A uh, big thing is preparing candidates as well. Generally do that in the afternoon when people are a little less busy. And that's going through providing them with all the information you know, making sure that you can give them the, the inside track on um, what this company's history is, what people generally like to see on good resumes and things, and just making sure that your candidates are better prepared than people who are going in on their own. Because ultimately, you want to make sure that they are, they're exceptional in their interview. And uh, it's more fun for the candidate who's experiencing it. It's more enjoyable for the client who's obviously you know paying for your service. Um, so yeah, and then... Towards the back end of the day, that is really, I think, where it's it's about planning for the next day and making sure that all your items are sorted. So it's extremely process driven, like any sales organ and any sales role. Um, but also, it can be a hell of a lot of fun when you find a new thing to discuss, right? Which is game changing, and you're able to have a really expansive conversation with somebody. Um, and also, I'm going to be honest with you: sometimes people need reassurance; they need guidance and they need a confidence boost because perhaps they've been looking for a job for four months and they've received a bunch of like negative outcome and so you just got to be bullish and be like let's let's go and make it happen so there's a certain element of coaching in there um it's not just send cv and hope uh it's it's very kind of hands-on process um so hopefully that goes some way to give you an idea of what a, a day in the life of a recruiter is without getting too too granular that was really insightful what i took away from that is you need a lot of patience you need to be able to do a lot of research play the long game but then you also have that human element where you use it sounds like are really investing in your candidates and you're kind of shepherding them through the process i have to say i think we've all talked to recruiters at some point in our careers and they're recruiters and they're recruiters why are there so many recruiters that don't seem to be doing half of what you just said how do they make money it's a good question Tell me your experience of a bad recruitment process that you have maybe been in personally or that a friend has been in, has told you about, and I can help them more. Kind of the stereotype is a recruiter is somebody that calls you when they want to place a job and they're just looking for as many people who might be a good fit for this job, like numbers, shots on goal, and then you never hear from them again. Or sometimes you never hear from them again throughout the process. And so it feels very transactional, which, you know, I, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. But listening to what you just described, where it's about building a network and being patient and trying to look into the future, would it make more sense to try to really build those relationships with candidates? Or is it really just that for most recruiters and for most candidates, it's just a one-time transaction and you know, I, I'll call you when I need you and you call me when you need me. Is what, what do you think? Is there a difference in just mindset for different companies or is it like the real estate market where you have so many realtors and it's just hard to stand out? And so we're just seeing a, a, a huge bell curve. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely a lot of 
vendors in the market, a lot of recruiters saying, you know, obviously on that on that bell curve specialism as well that we mentioned a minute ago, a lot of people saying, I'm a specialist in this space. And then people have hyper specializing. There's there's a guy on my team who, if you need to place a contracts and pricing role, he's the only person in America that I would call. That's all he does every single day, right? I'm a little bit more spread out into other areas doing different things, but there are some that are hyper specialized. Coming back to your question on it, some companies, they're just going to work on as many roles as they possibly can. And these positions aren't committed, right? I think if we look at roles like how different species raise their child, raise their young, some are like, you're going to have like a thousand and then hopefully a hundred survive, but I'm not going to be there. Others have one and they nurse it all the way through to, through to a placement. Um, I don't know if that's a decent analogy for it, but that's a great analogy. I have not heard that one before, <laughs> but that makes a lot of sense. So it's just different, different, uh, different models, different business models. Different models. I was I was working on a position for a a, a mid sized pharmaceutical company, and uh, I was I was actually a day late. So something to know is if you are if you're the second recruiter to contact a candidate, and that candidate has already been sent to the um, sent to the position 99% of the time, there's nothing I can do. I can't represent you. I have to end the conversation there. And that's, that's that. Uh, I was a day late speaking to this candidate and uh, I still bang my head on the wall about it. Cause I was like, this guy gets the job. There's a lot of like, you'll sit there as a recruiter and be like, that person gets the job. Uh, we just had a, a vacancy come on for a market access uh, leader yesterday. And my colleague told me about it. And I was like, it's this person, it's this person, call him. And that's the one who gets it right straight away. So you just know, um, and this other candidate had been spoken to a day before. And so I'm sat there banging my head against the wall, as you do. And I caught up with him about three months later because I didn't see any update on the LinkedIn or anything like that. I was like, what, what happened there? Um, and he was like, well, be honest with you, that person only ever contacted me through LinkedIn recruiter. And we got down to the offer and we weren't really close. Uh, and so he just said, see you later. And never spoke to him again. I was like, what, but you're like a guaranteed fill for this role. So for me, I couldn't really understand how that person never called him, never done the thing. People just work in different ways. Um, but I think that similarly, some candidates you speak to will only ever want to text you. They'll never want to have a phone call. They'll never want to have a video call. They'll never want to have a meeting. And the minute you've got them over the line, they're never going to speak to you again. So I think that it can be transactional on both sides. With some clients, you really want to find partners who you trust and can, you know, you can advise them on, hey, maybe this person is an eight out of 10 on the resume, but their personality is an 11 out of 10 for what you need. You have other people where it's like, upload it to the portal. If we want to interview them, we'll send you an email. And then you're kind of playing catch up because you don't really know what's going on in the process. Um, and you're trying to give as much advice as possible. And if it's in that situation, some recruiters are like, why would I bother to spend 30 minutes prepping somebody on something? I don't know. Let's just see if they do well. And if we get a fee out of it, fantastic if we make a placement brilliant but um yeah contingency recruitment pay on success if you have tons and tons of customers then um you don't maybe spend as much attention on them looking at this from the the candidate perspective so you know to Nari's point there's a lot of choices out there there's a lot of realtors there's a lot of recruiters right to choose from it's hard to figure out like if you're you know they've just been laid off or you know it's coming and you're panicking a little bit you're trying to make your next move how should the candidate approach that? And, and here's the specific part of the question. Should they just call you or somebody like you? Or do they call 10 or 20 or 50 different recruiters and play the numbers game? And what's the argument on, on both sides of that? I would honestly say that if you have been recommended to a recruiter, then 
that's the best place to start. So like asking, asking your friends, asking, you know, former colleagues, et cetera. Uh, hey, do you know anybody who's good? And a recommendation works both ways, right? If, if somebody mentions somebody that I've previously placed recommended you, just frankly, I'm going to spend more time in, in helping you out, right? So I'd always try and have those recommendations. Um, I would speak to a variety of recruiters and almost interview them if they're going to represent you, right? Remember, this is like, this is your career. We're not working with people who are jumping all over the place. We're speaking to the best and brightest people in the life sciences. It's, it's pretty exciting stuff. And something that you need to recognize is the vast majority of people that we work with, like top 1% in their industry. And that's really exciting. If we think about it from just grading perspective, I only work with A's and A pluses for any role. And I will tell you if you're not perfect for it, like, or if you're not good for it, we're not gonna we're not gonna pursue this role. Like I'm not gonna try and force shoehorn people in. Um, so interview a variety of different recruiters, find out who truly knows their space and who is an expert in that environment. And if they're not, cool. Happy days. Maybe they'll maybe they'll surprise you. Maybe they'll come to you out of the blue with something really, really cool. But invest your time learning from and getting prepped by the people who have a very customer-centric approach, the people who know their space. Um a, a good telltale sign, and it's not everything, but certainly in 2023, it's, it's a good reference point. How many mutual connections do you have on LinkedIn with that recruiter who you're reaching out to? If the answer is three compared to somebody who has like 600 mutual connections with you, that person with 600 is probably going to be a little bit more plugged in. Could be wrong, right? But certainly worth worth having as a, as a checking point on there. Um, and then also, how much do you like that person, right? How much do you actually enjoy speaking to them? Because at the end of the day, if I look at my most recent placement that I made from a major pharmaceutical company, the, the process only took three weeks. But within that, I spent about six hours speaking to this person, right? And it's like, hey, look at these pictures of where I am on vacation. That's awesome. You know, this is my dog. This is my cat, etc. Like, we're going further than just business. We're actually having, we're friends, right? And certainly like to think that if you're working with somebody who just can't stand and you're just trying to get the job, they're probably not going to advocate for you hard, push for that extra bit, um, and, uh, and really put their full energy into closing the client on you, right? Because there's a human element to this. And recruiters do get to, 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 to you know, work with clients to make that decision. It's not just an arbitrary one. So I would say find people who are well-connected, people who know their space from the get-go, speak to a bunch of different ones and only work with a couple that you think are good. What's the magic number there? You say, is it, is it really two? Is it five? Is it, I mean, is there... What's your view on that? I think people struggle with that. You know, is it just this shotgun approach? Like I'm going to send my resume to everybody on LinkedIn that I've ever, that I know or. Yeah, it, it, there will be a, I'd say like one or two. Really? Okay. I really wouldn't, I really wouldn't go higher than three. I mean, you got to have three conversations with a recruiter every single week. Yeah. I, I don't want to have three conversations with a recruiter every single week and I am one. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think. Pick a couple that you like and 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 stick with them. I worked with a, an individual who was very biotech focused, right? And um, placed that person in one role in a biotech that biotech got bought. They gave me a call, placed them in another biotech that biotech got bought, and then they went on to a, a mid-sized pharma company. And I've ended up building that person's team, right? And so it's it's really like there's benefit on both sides of building friendships and connections. Um, over the longer over the longer term i just if you're if you're known to everybody then it's yeah it just seems kind of be all over the place a little bit so it sounds like it would behoove both sides to think long term 
and see this as an opportunity to, to expand your network. And if it doesn't work out for this role, maybe it works out for another role. Yep. So there's no harm in being nice <laughs> and, and building that connection <laughs> yeah. just as in generally in life. But it sounds like both sides have to think about what's the approach. Am I going to do it just as a transaction and hope for the best? And maybe then you have to really talk to a lot of different people. Or do you invest a little bit more time and it might not pay off immediately, but maybe it helps build your skills of how to interview and how to just learn a little bit more about the process because that, that could also change. And then the recruiter that you build a connection with can advise you, like you said, and give you that extra bit of information or guidance or uh, networking, right? Because they are close to the hiring managers, as you said. So maybe that will give you that extra push. Yep. Definitely. I think that the other thing to take a look at is on building long-term relationships. I always use this analogy whenever we have a new person join. It's like, how many people cut your hair? And for most people, it's one person. I have had one barber for the last six years. And my relationship with that guy is I sit down in the chair and we just start talking. He goes, goes to work, does his thing. I don't even have to tell him. And it comes out looking exactly how I want it to look every single time. That should be your experience as a hiring manager with your recruiter is that you're like, we got to do a, you know, director of forecasting. Cool. Sweet. Here's five that I know that you're going to like. You want to change things up this time? Tell me. But if it's the usual process, then let's make that happen. In the same way, if you're working with a, if you're working with a recruiter as a candidate and they're introducing you to, you know, they're calling you and you, you categorically don't want to relocate out of Boston and they're calling you with a job in Chicago and LA and stuff like that. Right. And they're trying to convince you and, and, you know, it's a bit clunky. That person probably doesn't care about you enough to really take your specifications into consideration and say, okay, here are five companies in Boston that we're going to target because they are what you want. So I think that if you are looking for a long term move and you're gainfully employed at the moment, then picking one person, find the perfect move, I think is, is right. If you are looking for a job actively, then maybe it's worth having more people and trying to find something that could be a good fit. So it's a little bit like what we say about when you interview for a role and that's the first time you meet with the hiring manager or the hiring panel, That's then you're already late. You have to build your reputation ahead of time and people need to know what you stand for so that you can then come in as a known entity. Sounds a little bit like what you just described. Yeah, this is, this is really helpful. And, and, and uh, you know, our listeners can't see the video that I'm looking at. And I will call out that, that Christian's haircut does look particularly good. So his, <laughs> his barber, he, he had a, made a good choice there. Obviously, six years of, of practice. Uh, he's refined his technique. Uh, so it's so looking good, Christian. And I also feel like maybe I'm doing something a little bit wrong or have been. I need to uh, apparently uh, update the profile of my dog. And uh, get that out there as, as a conversation builder is one, one takeaway, at least I'm here. It's something I certainly don't do. But seriously, I think you make some good points. Like that, that relationship is such an important one. And, and it may end up being transactional, and that's okay if you get a job. But, you know, to kind of rise to the top to get the kind of support you need and deserve, you know, you need to have that fit, uh, you know, in terms of the relationship. And, and that takes investment of time and, and effort, right, on, on both sides to build that. And as you said, Christian, Maybe you will become a hiring manager and then you have a good recruiter already who knows what you like and what you are all about. So that could save you some time in the long run too. So I wanted to circle back to something you mentioned a little bit earlier. And occasionally you have a candidate that really just needs a little bit of a pep talk, right? <laughs> they've been beat up a little bit. They've gotten some rejection letters. Maybe we've all been there. 
you know, I wonder, I'll put you on the spot, I suppose, if you can think of a candidate that seemed a little atypical or unconventional, that kind of surprised you in a positive way, that really had a positive outcome. Like they landed this job that maybe they were viewing themselves as a little bit of the underdog or underqualified or maybe not the right fit, but came out the other side with a great placement and, and have been successful in the role. And, and if anybody comes to mind, I think that's it's always inspirational to hear about those stories because sometimes we feel that way when we're applying. Like, oh, I don't know if I'm 100% fit. Probably other people that are more qualified. Should I even try for this thing? Have you experienced that with some candidates? Yeah, I, it's it, it's a difficult one to answer. I would I would say no, I have not. But there's a reason why. Okay. Companies pay me to find them people who are doing the job and have these like really core skill sets. Um, so if you're coming to me with a a, a great core skill set, but it's not in my not in my area. I'll tell you, I'm not your guy, right? Go and speak to this person, this person, this person. Um, always, if it's somebody within a core skill set, then I'm like that person gets the like. It's it's like intuition, right? Yeah. So from a, I've never taken somebody who's you know in a totally different industry and they've done this and this. They, they've not done anything aligned with it, and I've just thrown them into the mix and we've created a miracle. Unfortunately, that's that's never the case. From a personality standpoint. Um, I, I, I remember speaking to this candidate for a, like a di- director of commercial operations role. And they were, being, they were being told to work like 80 hours a week and there was no flexibility and they were just exhausted and everything like this. And their, their boss had been like, it was kind of nuts actually, given that the world we live in now. But um, the, the person was like, oh, you, like there's nowhere else that's going to hire you. It was kind of like an abusive relationship. It was really bad. And I was like, the more I got to know this person, I was like, I'm, I'm sorry, but you're a stud. You are. You do all these things. You're a 10 out of 10 candidate, and you just need to back yourself. Like you need to back yourself. Understand that this opportunity is is not only the right next step for you; it's the necessary next step for you to get away from this previous experience. And uh, and sure enough, we got them like a about a 70k increase in their total compensation um, year over year. They got more flexibility with the role instead of being five days a week on site. It was two days a week on site. And, uh, and I spoke with that person six months later, better relationship with their kids, better relationship with their partner, right? Had started going back to the gym, like all these really cool things. Um, and I think that sometimes we can get so bogged down in doing our job that we forget that we're not living to like living to work, right? We're working to live. Um, and so the core skill sets, it's always going to be within these parameters, but the personality and uh, and helping somebody get to that point, that's honestly, I would rather make a smaller like fee, but know that I've helped somebody change their situation than a big fee. And it's just, you know, like for like. That's an awesome perspective. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I have a somewhat random question, but you said something earlier. Uh, one thing I've been wondering about on LinkedIn, when you look at job postings, there are often dozens, if not hundreds of people applying for any job that comes open. And I was looking at this primarily because I wanted to see if remote jobs get more applications than non-remote jobs. And we can talk about that a little bit later. But can you speak a little bit to that? Is that just a consequence of how easy it is to apply? Or do we truly have that many people who are looking for a job? and or that many qualified candidates. What happens on the other end of this? 
I have had so many conversations with talent acquisition managers who have said, I have 400 applications and nobody good. Can you help me out? I'm like, yeah, 100%. I'll send you three people and you'll like all of them and we'll get this process going and they'll be filled within a few weeks. We are in this kind of era of dating app recruitment a lot of the time where you don't have to you know, fill out anything. You don't have to know anyone. You just hit quick apply and you just quick apply, quick apply, quick apply down your screen. You've done 50 applications that day and uh, let's see what happens, right? People can filter now. Like LinkedIn is an incredible tool. I think we'll probably talk about it later, but like how technology stacks have changed recruitment. It's, it's insane. Um, I still used to write down numbers on a piece of paper when I started. And now it's like, well, in this crazy CRM, I just click something. But it's all become so much easier to apply that you don't put as much time into it. Maybe people are listening at the moment and think, I put time into it. Fantastic. You are in the minority because the vast majority of roles that I see posting myself um, will be people from different industries, people from different, you know, different subsets, people who have just graduated. And that doesn't mean that those individuals aren't talented at their space. But coming back to the point I just previously made, they ain't going to get the job for this specific job. What it means is that somebody who is perfect for the job is going to be, uh, I guess, dissuaded maybe or feel less confident about their chances. And so they might not apply, right? They might feel as though they are, rather than being a top 1% candidate or you know an A candidate or whatever you want to call it, whatever your vernacular is, they may think that they're just one of hundreds in the room and no one's ever going to notice them. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, if you get lost in the soup, if I have to sit there and scroll through 400 applications, right? You may well get lost in the soup. The largest placement I've ever made, right? Most senior position that I've ever made, believe it or not, was from a job advert. It was from a job advert posted and someone applied to it. I was like, oh my God, this person gets the job, right? But maybe like six people had applied to that role because it's very, very specific. That was a few years ago. Now, if I post the same role, I'll get like 400 applications. So job adverts will land you a great job. Categorically will land you a great job. But in this market, it's much better to go through a direct referral, to go through a recruiter, to be, you know, to be more visible, right? And that's not even talking about your brand on LinkedIn, like just speaking to people and networking and finding out what's good. And then from there, you'll get into a role. So yeah, job adverts is too easy to apply. Yeah, we've definitely seen exactly what you're describing. I mean, just thinking about the last few postings that we've done at my organization on LinkedIn, I would say without exaggeration, less than 1% of the applicants even meet the minimum job requirements that we've posted in the ad. So people are clearly not reading them. And it does take a lot of time to sift through those. It's a drain on productivity. And, and to your point, you know, you might miss somebody in there or react too slowly because you just can't get to them. And they've gone on and found something else if they're really a star candidate. And uh, it's a real issue. But going back to the topic of technology and how that's changing your work, I would assume that most organizations don't have the time or the resources to really sift through hundreds of applications. So that's probably all automated. And you may have to also optimize your CV for each application that you put online, right? So you can't, you don't get stuck in the, in the first round of filtering. But your organization, Nari, do you have a, uh, an AI bot that filters people? I'm actually not sure. Control F, basically. Like if you want to have keywords on there, 100%, right? Control F will find the person who has that specific thing, car T or have like PTRS or, or, you know, any of these acronyms. But people, I was literally in the elevator in my apartment building the other day and I was hearing someone talking to somebody on the phone 
being like, listen, you, you've got to optimize your resume. So it's got these keywords. So it gets brought up, you know, and I was talking to somebody else who was like, you have to just copy and paste the job description into the, into your resume and make the page, make the lettering white and make it three, like 0.3 fonts. So it's all on there. So it comes up with the keywords. And I was like, we're living in a conspiracy. This is insane. <laughs> so you're saying that doesn't work? No. <laughs> Not at all. Like great people stand out on their resume and you call them and you discuss the role with them and you find out if they're going to be a good fit. I'm taking notes right now on what I need to change in my resume. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Copy go, and paste keep, the whole job description. When yeah. I heard that, I was like, is that a thing? Because again, I don't I don't know everything, but to give some context, um, EPM Scientific is bench to bedside. So we have people from PKPD through to pharmacovigilance, ClinDev, medical affairs, quality reg, commercial, specialists in every space. And none of them are prepping candidates to have an AI optimized resume. And that goes, you know, and none of my none of my clients are saying this person stood out to me because they had this no, it's what's the story? You just burst the AI bubble here. I mean, look, I'm, in six months' time, I'm going to be wrong. I know we'll be listening to this in 2025, and I'll be like, oh, evidently, it's now a thing. But for, for right here, right now, in this job market, nah, network is your net worth. And, and you've got to know people. You've got to make conversation and uh, treat life like a conference, right? Treat life like ASCO. If you're just, if you're just stood in the corner, just kind of waiting for someone to come up to you, it's not going to happen. You've got to be proactive. You've got to walk, walk up to the booth. You've got to make friends. You've got to get rejected a few times, right? Even if you are the best in class. But once you're, once you're well-networked and things, the opportunities will start to come to you and it will be, yeah. But you've got to put in that awkward legwork at the beginning. And it's, that's the toughest part. So that hasn't changed, huh? Even in, in our current environment, you still got to do hard work. All right, let's move on. <laughs> to something slightly different, which is what areas are hot right now? From what you're seeing, you mentioned a little bit earlier, COVID, of course, is 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 going down a little bit. But you said GLP ones, they're very hot right now. Dermatology, neurology. What other areas do you think see high demand? Yeah. I was speaking to this really talented person the other day and uh and, and what she was saying to me is Pharmaceutical and biotech companies are going for unmet patient need and the opportunity to basically access an underserved market is really what's going on. Over the last couple of years or over the last 10 years or so, it's all been that surge towards solid tumors, hematology, oncology. A couple of years ago, obviously, you know, it's vaccines, as I've already mentioned. Now, the eye is big Big, big, big. I don't. I made maybe like a Zydra placement, maybe a couple of Ilea Lucentis placements in the past. Um, but now, so many ophthalmology companies are jumping onto the scene with everything from um, from drops through to therapeutics, through to surgical, through to device. Like everybody in ophthalmology has having a massive year. And the most exciting thing is, people are no longer going. And this is the big thing, right? A lot of the time in recruitment, I'm calling people and I'm like, they're going to turn their nose up at this, right? We have like a stack. So it's, if somebody's doing this therapy area, they're not going to be interested in this therapy area. That has gone out the freaking window and I absolutely love it because this year, it's how excited, like what, what's the impact of the product? Well, you have a drop, which is going to help you with glaucoma. 
well, I know loads of people who have glaucoma, right? You have an injection, which is going to help you with type 2 diabetes. Well, I know loads of people with type 2 diabetes. Compare that with a very, very specific form of metastasized cancer, et cetera. Like the, the market is a lot smaller. So people are going for a major market this year and everybody has eyes. Well, you know, the vast majority of people have eyes, same with skin, same with respiratory. Respiratory is big at the moment. A lot of companies who are launching in COPD, asthma, things like that. If we think about like the Upelry and the different inhalers and what have you over the years, thought that would be done by now. But now a new generation of respiratory products is coming out. A new generation of ophthalmology products is coming out. Uh, neuroscience, the idea around what is the future of treatment for neuroscience and new products that are going to be coming out in that space. So it's a lot less in oncology and a lot more in those areas. Also autoimmune diseases. Those are much more in the early phase clinics. So if I had to project some stocks to buy, I would go for autoimmune companies now. And in about three years time, they will have been bought. Um, and the same with immunology as well. Like Those are the areas that are hot. Disclaimer, we're not providing financial advice here. This is just Christian. <laughs> okay, so you're saying, you're saying that people used to have maybe a little bit of a rank order of which therapeutic areas they would be interested in which they would consider and some of the ones that you just mentioned were at the bottom of that but now people don't care that much about what's the prestige but more what's the unmet need and can i help address that is that correct absolutely 100 the likelihood that you had a stable year this year if you were in gene therapy versus the likelihood that you had a stable year if you were in ophthalmology very very different the people who have made the smart move jumped onto those ophthalmology teams that were launching products and uh and the individuals who have had an absolute roller coaster have been in those areas which over the last few years were the safest as far as employment is concerned not necessarily approvals but just employment you know the last few years we definitely have heard this term title inflation right i think maybe that you know we think about the the covid period maybe that was occurring when when demand was higher and as you said you know you hit five to six jobs for every candidate there's some competition there it probably drove up comp it probably drove up titles Uh, now, for the first time, I think I'm hearing this term titled deflation. So is that a thing? What does that mean? How should we be thinking about that? Should we be kind of getting a little uptight of, oh, this is a great role, but I'm taking one step down and that's going to look bad on my resume or it's a hit to my ego. How do you counsel candidates on that? Yeah, I think that title deflation is a serious thing this year. And linking back to your point about applications, um, For relevant candidates, right? Um, we'll, we'll look in that. You know, people who are doing doing a similar job have done a similar job. Uh, if you're working on a VP role, you're now seeing CCO candidates jump into the mix. You're similarly seeing your senior directors who are looking to move up to a VP. So, a company's kind of sat there with if they're if they're running a search through a search consultancy or you know using their own internal resources, they're seeing a lot more experienced candidates. Um, just in the mix and genuinely interested in the role because there's there's fewer senior opportunities at the moment. There just is. Um, it doesn't mean that there's no opportunities, just there's fewer senior opportunities. Uh, and as such, people are getting hired into roles that are necessarily a step backwards in title compared to the last couple of years, but actually the responsibilities that they have are equitable to that more senior position, right? Uh, and so I'm always saying, look inside of the bond Don't just look at the um, don't just look at the title. Look at the responsibilities 
um, look at the longevity of the pipeline. How many assets? What's the peak sales expectations for those assets that you're going to be launching? Um, and the easiest way to equate it now is I'm recommending people, rather than picking a job based on the base salary, pick it on the long-term equity options. Similarly, if you are picking something purely based on the title today, and you're not thinking about where that job's going to take you in three to five years' time, then you're missing a trick. Um, so people are understanding that roles, like senior roles with really stable organizations are fewer and further between, um, or certainly roles in general are fewer and further between, but the roles that are hiring are with stable organizations, uh, and they're picking those companies based on their long-term opportunity. Also, over the last few years, 85% of roles were remote, right? Now, 30, 20, maybe percent of roles, 15% of roles are remote. So you're going to be looking at organizations in your local area where you're going and on a hybrid basis, they've got to have stability. Like those three things have all been mentioned. They've got to have good compensation. Those three things have all been mentioned before we talk about the title. So 100% title deflation is a thing, but people still want to make lots of money, right? Everybody has the, has, should have that in their mind. So comp hasn't gone down. If I look at a senior director title today, getting somebody $40,000 more on the base salary than they would have done two years ago because they're a VP or they're a you know, SVP or something like that coming to, coming to a lower level. Um, but they still want to maintain their standard of living, which is totally respectable. So that takes a sting out of it a little bit because you don't want to take a decrease on title and salary. But you're saying the, the titles have come down, you retain your salary, or maybe you can even increase it by taking a step down. But then what's the long-term prospect? Sometimes when you switch organizations, titles are important because that's obviously the benchmark that the new hiring company will look at. So are you kind of shooting yourself in the foot a little bit by then taking one or two steps down and then you have to work your way back up? Because normally we say when you go from a bigger to a smaller organization, your title should increase because there was always title inflation. But now if you take a step down and you go from a big or medium-sized company to a small company, what do you think, the, what does that mean for your future prospects? What if you're going from a smaller organization to a larger organization? Would you take a step backwards in title? I think that's normally accept, expected. Yeah, I think we see that. The vast majority of companies that are hiring at the moment are your more stable, larger organizations. Not exclusively, right? There's still there's still a lot of roles out there to for, for biotechs, um, but the yeah the the titles will be res like equivalent to a large organization. I mean, I'm thinking of a large large manufacturer that I work with, and they have maybe six VPs in their organization, but like 30 senior directors. So they just can't get signed off from HR to have another VP, uh, but they can senior director, and they can pay you basically a VP salary to come in as a senior director. So thinking about it from that point, but coming back to it as a If we're thinking two years down the line and you're sat there in an interview and somebody says to you, which they generally don't, tell me if you do this when you interview people, but they're like, well, you were an executive director there and then you moved to a senior director. Why? And I would counsel somebody to say, in this company, I was an executive director and I had a you know peak sales responsibility of $100 million. In this one, I was a senior director, but I had triple the headcount. I had $600 million worth of You know, annual revenue expectation, et cetera, um, or budget responsibility was X and Y. 
and again, go inside of it and look at the reasons why you joined in the first place to answer their question because it's more responsibility. It was a bigger team. Um, and this is what we were able to do, right? This is what we were able to do. And so people will always want to hire you on what you've done rather than what your business card has said. Um, and, uh, and so I think you can you know, explain it in a way that's going to make someone go, wow, you're not just obsessed with title. You're actually obsessed with like changing patients' lives and, and changing companies. And I, I think you'll do really well. That's a great perspective. I think that's a great way to, to, to manage that. But let's see. I'm a little skeptical on that part. Let's see in a year. Maybe we can look back and see how that played out. But I, I, I think generally it's hard to, to compensate for that in terms of title. But as you mentioned, stability seems to be your keyword for 2023. So in this case, that's basically a trade-off. More stability and then maybe less title. And then let's see what happens. Yeah, I, I think my final equivalent point would be if you have been laid off from a company, no one's going to sit there and be like, I don't want to hire that person because they were laid off. They're going to say, I have a great person here who I can hire. Um, and it'll be the same. They're not going to look at it and be like, you took a step back, was entitled. They're going to say, wow, this person has amazing experience and I'm going to hire them based on that and give them the title that they deserve. And yeah, maybe things will change in a few years time. Maybe we'll see title inflation again. But it's also been crazy the last few years. Right? Some of the some of the job description, like years of experience that were needed for certain levels were just completely ignored. <laughs> um, and I don't, I, HR directors around the country must have been losing their minds because there are all these infractions upon it and stuff. And now we're seeing that hardening up a lot more, you know, nine, 10 years for a, for a director, 15 years for a senior director, whereas it went down to like two years and you can be a director. And, uh, and so, yeah, we're seeing a thickening of things. It, because just, they just couldn't get enough talent. Yeah. Yeah. They couldn't get enough talent. And uh, it was an easier way of differentiating a role than, um, than dramatically increasing the compensation or, um, or giving them more products to work on or something like that. Just increase the title and you're going to get more people applying to it. So the pendulum has swung back now and then let's see if it ends up somewhere in the middle next year. <laughs> exactly. Or the next few years. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk comp, right? Compensation. Because, you know, of course, that's important to all of us. Um, it's a hard thing to figure out sometimes because, you know, in polite company, it's not often talked about openly. Nobody wants to be underpaid. No company wants to overpay. I think maybe you brought some stats, which might be interesting. And I don't know if you can kind of give us a snapshot of, of kind of what, and I know it varies a lot by company, by therapeutic area, by region, I'm, I'm guessing, but, but what can you share with our listeners that, that might be useful for them? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would caveat that when you're speaking with a recruiter, they are incentivized to make sure that the role that you go into, you stay in for the long term right? Uh, the way that our compensation works is that if somebody joins and they leave within a month, then you, you're not getting paid for that role, right? So something to keep in consideration is it behooves a recruiter to get you a very solid compensation because that avoids another competitor calling you up a couple of months later and being like, hey, you're actually dramatically underpaid for your role. Would you like another 50 grand? And just out of like, why have you got me such a bad salary? People will consider it. They'll at least consider it. So you want to make sure that they're taken care of and they're in a good spot. And as such, when I talk to people about their, their compensation expectations, half the time, like, 
yeah, that's that's spot on. But the other half of the time, it's um, no, we need to dramatically adjust that. Some people, that's never going to happen, right? You have to be realistic. Others, actually, we could get significantly more than that. So um, I obviously, you know, focus my work in the commercial space. Uh, if you are, if you're a director at the moment, um, your expectations should be uh, somewhere around the 200 to 250 on the base salary. Now, if we're looking in certain areas of, of commercial operations, it's going to be slightly lower. So probably like 190 to 230 is generally what I've been seeing. And that doesn't mean that it's more or less important than other areas. That's just what's the market's paying. I'm just giving objective data. Uh, and then for, for marketing, a, um, a very solid you know, salary for a marketing director is going to be around that kind of 240 to 250 um, and, uh, and, and so on. Uh, for your senior directors, this is again where we've seen quite a significant delta uh, rather than a few years ago where I was seeing senior directors getting paid like 240, 250 maybe on the base. Now it's gone up to more like 275 to 290, maybe even 300K for, um, for really good people. And you may be thinking, well, where is that geographically? This is actually the median across the nation. Um, so there's surprisingly not that much of a delta between San Francisco and Texas. Which is just nuts, given the given the compensation, given the cost of living differences. Um, but also, you know, there are companies in Southern California which are paying less than companies in Chicago, and it, it's so really the median, um, especially especially around that kind of director senior director level, is um, is going to be like the two hundred to two fifty on the base, and then really two fifty to three hundred um, for for your senior directors. And then what I think is arguably more interesting is your compensation um, on the long term. So. Bonuses, what you should expect really as a director is something in the, I would say the twos, right? So 25% is probably your midpoint for a director um, short-term incentive bonus, so annual bonus. And for a senior director, you should really be looking at the lowest 25%, uh, but more up towards like the 28 to 32% um, is what you should expect. And then when we have the, the restricted stock or the long-term incentives, call it what you will, um, some companies are, are still offering a lot less, right? Cash equity, somewhere around 25K for a director. But I also have companies who are offering um, $120,000 worth of RSUs for a director, which vests over three years. And for a senior director, that can go anywhere from generally about 50K up to 250K. Um, something that people ask me a lot is around um, restricted stock units versus cash equity versus share options and all these kind of things. And we can... We can dig into that now if you think your listeners will be interested in it. Um, but ultimately, I can tell you the vast majority of companies are handing out RSUs at that kind of mid to senior level. Yeah. And would you say more like early stage or, or smaller biotechs kind of lean maybe towards options, right? You know, probably more financially feasible for them to do that. And, and look, if you, you know, if you pick the right small company and you join at the right time, those can be very lucrative, uh, but it's, you know, a little bit more of a kind of that risk reward ratio uh, you got to consider. Absolutely. Some people have done very well in picking the smaller biotechs and, um, and and getting you know getting acquired and getting all their equity to pay out really quickly. And but I have spoken to a variety of other individuals who moved there and were offered seven figures worth of options, and then the everything went underwater. So depending on your personal situation, cash is very often king, um, and uh, and knowing what you're going to get every year is is more enticing than the the options long-term. Um, again, it depends entirely on your personal situation and your risk profile. High risk, high reward. 
So you mentioned the regional differences and maybe that there are not these predictable patterns for compensation. Another hot topic that keeps coming up is work on site versus work remotely. I don't think we have seen any company manage that really well. It keeps coming up in the news, not just in our industry, but across industries. There seems to be a little bit of a disconnect between maybe what management prefers versus what a majority of employees prefer. Are you seeing that as a competitive differentiator in how companies are trying to hire commercial talent in biopharma or not even commercial talent, but generated talent? Yeah. So I'll stick with commercial just because that's where I can speak the most to it. Over the last year, I reckon 90% of the conversations that I've had have included some discussion around location and people have asked me what am i seeing and they've said a lot of the same thing right so what am i seeing uh, the vast majority of companies that are hiring at the moment for senior positions obviously the area that i focus on want to have people on site they want to have people on site every single week and the expectation you should have is that they want to bring you on site two to three times a week the opportunity to Oh, I'm going to be based here, but I'll travel every couple of weeks, etc. Like, I don't know your personal situation better than you know your personal situation, but I do understand what it is to be human. And if you're traveling every single week and having to get on a plane, book a hotel, an Airbnb, etc., you're going to hate the weeks where you have to go on site, and you're going to be in a position where you need to have a where you need to have a serious conversation with your family about how this is going to be. Right. So, just personally, I'm expecting people have an expectation that they want to travel and not have to move, but companies are expecting people to be on site every single week. And uh, and as such, I would always say to people, like, find somewhere that's closer to home for you um, so you don't have to worry about this in the long term. Do you see the opportunity to have that kind of more flexible work arrangement, hybrid or even remote as something that is coming up more as a criterion for candidates or companies or both in terms of how they make hiring decisions? So in other words, are candidates more likely to jump on a remote role if everything else is comparable? Or are there just not as many job offers? I think you mentioned it's now gone down significantly. Or is it even still a topic? Sure. So I think it's becoming less and less of a topic. Um, obviously, people you know people will ask about it. Uh, but most people just get kind of hybrid flexibility. Um, and uh, and that's the, that's the be all and end all. So a lot more, a lot more candidates are having to relocate Again, like it's it's almost returning to pre-pandemic levels of relocation packages. What does that look like? They'll give you a year to relocate, um, but make that happen. You know, everyone will take into consideration kids' school years and 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 you know what needs to go on inside the the household to make that happen. They're not going to ask you to do it in three weeks, which in 2018, 2019, that was what was was going down. But it's less of a conversation and more of an expectation that the role is going to be hybrid now. And I think people are generally okay with that. Um, this idea that we're all going to be working fully remote forever, I think has, has diminished. One thing I would say is as a recruiter, we're bringing people in through the door, right? As a first introduction, as a, you know, an interview process. And a lot of that is stipulated around, um, what human resources have said has to go, um, it has, has to go on the job description. Once you're in the company and you've been there for a year, you will work out your own working arrangements with your with your direct line manager. It doesn't mean that you trust the new person less than the old person, but I think that there's a there's an expectation that once you've been there for a while, 
you're a known entity and, and flexibility will increase. Um, but just coming in through the door, I, I feel as though everyone's looking for people who can be on hybrid and most people recognize that. Kristen, it's been an amazing conversation with you. I hope the first of many, we want you to be a recurring guest and the job market always changes. So there's justification for that, not just that we like talking to you. But to close it out, I wanted to ask you a question about being a pathfinder in the industry, specifically in, in the recruitment uh, sector. Is there a person or a piece of advice or something that has stuck with you that helped you chart your path? It's that there's a few answers, right? Somebody who told me something and somebody who didn't tell me it, but I heard it and have tried to make it part of my day to day life. So if we start with the piece of advice that I would give to anybody, whether they're joining recruitment, whether they're working in the life science industry, there's a, a guy called Matt Fraser who won the CrossFit Games five times in a row. Absolute legend of that sport. And his go-to when he was putting in work was, I'm willing to do today what others won't so I can do tomorrow what others can't. I like that. And anytime I'm in a position in my personal life or in my work life where I'm thinking, this sucks and this is not fun, knowing that you're today willing to do what others won't generally leads to being tomorrow what doing what others can't and you've got to take risks and you've got to be willing to believe in your own goals and ambitions i said at the top of the top of the conversation um i literally had never been to the great state of texas before i permanently relocated here with two suitcases and i was absolutely terrified but how am i supposed to sit here as a recruiter recommending to people that they change their life if i myself have always taken the safe bet i love that that's that's great and ultimately long may it continue right if somebody came to me tomorrow and said listen you got to move to boston to go and advance your career tick let's go right let's see what happens if it makes sense the second thing is i remember my very first day in recruitment i, I got fired from my first recruitment company i was i was doing some really low level recruitment where I wasn't allowed to talk to clients. I, the candidates I was speaking to really didn't want to, didn't want to talk to me. And it was, when I say low level, I just mean like very junior, junior positions, um, obviously important work and whatever they were doing. But I came in with zero confidence in like my ability to recruit, but I knew this was what I wanted to do. And uh, the, the, at the time managing director of, of the UK, a guy called Steve Yandel, um, he sat us all in the room right? All the new people and kind of gave this, this, this speech of, you can make of this opportunity what you want of it. If you want this to be a short-term thing and you quit, then that's fine, right? That's just going to be what it's going to be. But if you want to apply yourself to truly build a reputation and a brand name inside of this industry, um, the sky is the absolute limit and there's no boundary on what we, can, what we can offer to you and what you can expect to be able to do. And, and I remember sitting there still terrified that I was never going to make a placement and still terrified that I was never going to have a conversation with somebody and they weren't going to be like, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. And, uh, and I was like, let me, just, let me just see what I can do. Right? Let me just see what I can do. I wrote out five goals that I wanted to do by the time I've been in the industry for 10 years and, um, and just started working towards all of them. Right? So it was, uh, yeah, I think that the first piece of advice probably more interesting than the second piece of advice. But for me, 
from the very first day in this organization, I was like, if I do it, they'll back me. Awesome. Th- thank you so much. Uh, I think it gives you know our listeners a lot to think about. It's always nice to close on a, a note that gives a little opportunity for introspection and, and a positive note as well. So thank you for that. Really enjoyed this conversation. It flew by. We covered a lot of ground. To Nari's point, I think we need to have you back maybe quarterly or something like that because this is one of these evergreen topics that's always going to be important. The landscape's always evolving. Uh, our careers are always evolving. So uh, I look forward to future conversations with you as well. So th- thank you for the time, Christian. Christian, it was lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you for making the time for us. Thank you for showcasing your beautiful hair- haircut. <laughs> and I really look forward to seeing you again. It's my absolute pleasure. And, and I think that the conversations that you're going to be bringing to the table throughout this podcast are going to be extremely exciting. And I'm, yeah, I'm delighted to be a part of it in its, in its genesis. So uh, always absolutely love speaking to both of you and um, excited to do it in this, uh, in this context again and sometime soon. So thank you so much for the questions. And we will also share the information that you talked about on this episode in the show notes. So if people want to look at the information in more detail and there's some really great data that Christian has kindly shared, then you can find it there. So that was a really interesting conversation with Christian. And we'll definitely have to get him back at some other point in time. But this episode, to me, was really positive in the sense that he talked about, well, maybe the job market doesn't actually look as bad as the headlines make us believe. I think that's a great message to start the year with. And I think the other thing that stood out to me is his focus on stability. So people being willing to make compromises in terms of title, therapeutic indication, and maybe even location to trade it for more stability. And it seems like after the COVID years, that's understandable. And according to Christian, it's a trend. So let's see if we see that play out for the rest of the year as well. Yeah, I like that take also. And the other thing I'd add to that is, you know, I think this probably applies anytime throughout your career, but maybe arguably uh, it's more important now is just situational awareness. What's going on and in, in within your company, within the, the sector, certainly within your therapeutic area, uh, what's going on competitively, what skills uh, and experiences is the market demanding? Are there significant gaps in, in your profile versus what the market may demand? Because you and I have both have, have heard stories just recently of folks that didn't see it coming, got, got downsized, got laid off without much notice at all, like literally hours. That can be pretty traumatic. Nobody wants to find themselves in that situation, but you just need to be prepared. And, and I think investing up front in identifying a recruiter and, and filling those skills gaps and understanding what the landscape looks like and always networking, that's always going to serve you well. And, and it's a good reminder. We all get busy in our jobs, but we also have to be stay busy uh, managing our careers at the same time. All right. Well, until next time, we hope to join you all right back here for our next episode. We hope you found some value in this one and have a wonderful rest of your week. Take care. Thank you for listening. Please visit us at realpharma.co for more valuable resources. Real Pharma is brought to you by Black Canyon Ventures. 